and the challenge is already here in in Australia in many respects. The outside temperature is going to be so high, it's not safe for humans to be outside, and that's quite clear. So the, the critical question then becomes, but if the outside is going to be survivable during increasingly frequent uh, and more intense and long duration periods of extreme heat, we're going to need to cool the outside down. And that's about survival. That's no longer about comfort and convenience. That's actually about whether the human body can actually survive outdoors. Welcome to City Road, I'm Dallas Rogers and today we're talking with Simon Marvin about urban climate control. And here's a challenge for you, try listening to this episode without feeling that the world's just getting a little bit dystopian. So my name's Simon Marvin, Um, I'm from the Urban Institute at the University of Sheffield. Um, I suppose if I have to describe what I do, I often say I'm a amateur urban technologist. So I'm not an engineer, but I'm interested in the interconnections between technological change and the and the urban condition, really. And I'm interested in the sort of mutually defining relationships between technical change and urban life. And um, if I think about my interests, I've, my entry point tends to be through a particular technological system, um, energy, water, telecommunications, or more recently, smart cities and uh, urban low-carbon transitions. And at the moment, I've got this um, dual role. I work 70% in Sheffield and 30% in the School of Architecture, Design and Planning at Sydney University. Right here, and it's so good to have you along. Thank you. It's great to be here. You've been doing a little bit of work on climate control as an urban infrastructure, and I guess one way to kind of think about that is it starts from the quite playful and gets to the quite serious. I think we should start with the more playful things. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about indoor climate control and how we control indoor environments? Yes. I mean, on the one hand, we have a really good understanding of the history and development of air conditioning. So air conditioning makes uh, modern buildings and modern life possible by mechanically and electrically sort of substituting energy for the creation of warm and cooled environments. And that history really intrigued me, how central air conditioning has been to large-scale floor templates, glass-fronted buildings, and um, how it's been a very strong focus for historians of science and technology and architecture. But it sort of got me interested in wider questions of climate control. There seem to be other contexts of life where we try to create and optimise during the, in the early early period of uh, development of air conditioning, they talked about perfect weather, man-made weather. And it seemed to be highly resonant with contemporary debates about climate control. And I thought it was worth investigating mm. further. And initially, we started with... Um, we started in quite an experiential way with uh, a colleague, uh, John Rutherford, and, uh, and actually a filmmaker and artist, Emma Critchley, 
we decided to visit and experience a series of sites where climate control was important. This was uh, indoor skiing, mm-hmm. indoor skydiving, and indoor ice climbing. Now, I think many of your listeners will be familiar with indoor skiing, um, but indoor ice climbing, where you literally recreate a wall of ice mm. in a mountaineering store, and uh, indoor skydiving, whose, whose origins you find in um, finding ways of more cheaply and effectively training special forces. Right. Um, so which, really- that, which, of course, has a long history to the application of technology from the military into the civil and infrastructural. That's quite right. That's quite right. In, in all, all sorts of domains of life, you find uh, particularly robotics, automated vehicles, um, and actually, climate control is one of those domains where military, the military were very, very interested from the 1940s and 50s in how did you synthesize and create an artificial environment that humans could survive in hostile environments. So there's a really interesting history of something called cabin ecologies, which was really the first time that there was integrated work done on the human metabolism to understand how... Um, astronauts, pilots, submariners could uh, could survive for long periods of time in um, in the cabins of aircraft, in submarines, and in outer space. And a lot of the work that informed the history, I suppose, of environmental uh, sustainable uh, urbanism and sustainable architecture was actually pioneered in those domains. What happens to it then? Well. The, the starting point for that work was really to try to understand the infrastructural requirements required to create these sorts of climatic controlled enclosures. So there was the notion of enclosure, the infrastructural requirements to create that. How do you create snow and ice and how do you simulate uh, falling through the sky? The, and, and these are all highly energy intensive activities. Mm. It seems like the obvious thing to ask is, how energy consumptive are these practices, and are the benefits worth it? Well, interestingly, the uh, the site of the uh, indoor ski centre and the skydiving centre. The skydiving centre uses a a special high velocity fan to create a cushion of air. They're actually located on former industrial sites where there was already high capacity electricity cables in the ground and substations. That gives you some idea that you're talking about. These are really energy-intensive environments to create these environments. But what was intriguing to us was the relationship between these interiorized, enclosed ecologies of, of skiing, skydiving, and ice climbing, and their relationship with the outside. So if you think about snow and indoor snow production, actually many of the techniques... Oh, so, so the indoor ski um, resort resonates and resembles an, an outside ski environment and it uses much of the same equipment the lifts the safety devices but also those outdoor ski areas are also areas now that use artificial snow production so something like Italy is a nice example 90% of uh, ski resorts in Italy use artificial snow for for part of the year so we were really interested in the in the sort of relational um understanding of how these systems of climate control can move between the indoors and outdoors. And it's not just the technologies that move. Um, So, for example, the ski centre in Manchester, you could 
train to be a ski instructor there. You do the first part of your lessons indoors, then you do the rest of them outdoors. The ski competitions now that are a single competition will include elements indoors and then outdoors. And so you see this sort of blurring taking place where the, the experience of skiing is something that's constituted normally and on an, in an everyday manner through both indoor and outdoor forms of skiing. And each of them is technologically mediated through a system of snow production. Mm. I want to get to the outdoors in a minute and mm. get to the modification of weather outdoors. Mm. But before we go there, you mentioned that you had a filmmaker involved in the yeah. process and I assume that this is for a particular methodological or maybe even conceptual reason. What did the filmmaker bring to that project? So there was three of us who did the visits, and we all tried to participate in doing the activities together. And Emma is actually a trained underwater diver, and she films under, underwater as well. So she was, in some ways, some ways quite used to being in these unusual, these, these sort of technically uh, produced environments. Um, but the things that she the things that she noticed were often quite different from myself and John. So she took a lot of photographs, and we were walking around the outside of the ski centre, and the snow was leaking out of the doors of the ski centre, which I thought was quite nice. The ability to try to contain the snow within the building, and it couldn't easily be con- be contained. But I think what Emma Emma was very interested in the user's experience. Mm. of these of these uh, systems whereas i think from my point of view i think i was more interested in their production and their sort of transmutation across different contexts and what emma brought to it was a sensitivity for the very different reasons that people actually participated in these activities mm. okay so let's go outside now so urban weather modification i was talking to you in the cafe not long ago and you were telling me about air conditioning outside while you're waiting in the line to go to the botanical gardens in Singapore. Yeah, so my interest in the interior climate control meant that I visited a series of, I was very interested in those sites where you had at scale large uh, attempts to recreate outdoor environments inside. But in Singapore and Dubai were two of the examples. But in both those contexts, what really surprised me was the ways in which technological systems that had been created for the modulation and control of indoor environments were being used outdoors. So we were queuing in Singapore to go into the temperate, cooled botanical gardens of Gardens by the Bay, and there outside are special air conditioning units um, made by a company called Airbitat, and I think which is the naming is I think an attempt to try to constitute the outside as a sort of habitat, as an as a, as a sort of air as being something that can be whose some of its qualities can be controlled. And this company fascinated me. Um, it's been active um, in the Singapore context. It builds air conditioned bus shelters. And these air-conditioned units that are used where there's high densities of people who are um, assembled outside in high temperatures. And this was, I think this is quite profound, to be quite honest. I mean, I think it signals, I mean, we, there's a history of Singapore as the air-conditioned nation. It was a state project to demonstrate the ability to build an efficient modern economy in the tropics. And 
air conditioning now as is now shifting not just from being inside it's now become the outside environment has now become subject to modification through these air conditioning systems similarly in dubai so in dubai i was very interested in something called the climate controlled city which was a huge multi-block enclosed environment climate controlled environment which would have been the biggest in the world but actually never got built partly on ecological grounds because the amount of air conditioning that it would take to construct this city under glass but at the same time, um, some of my interviewees said, well, you should go and see City Walk because that's the new model that we've developed. We're no longer going to use these highly expensive energy-intensive forms of enclosure. Go and have a look at City Walk. City Walk actually has air conditioning units outside. So you can endure, you can extend the usability um, of the seasons in Dubai into the summer through outdoor air conditionings. So there's an inversion taking place. The air conditioning units in the buildings and city walk point both ways, indoors and outdoors. There's just so many questions, but I guess the one that comes to mind, front of mind, is what are we doing? Like, what are we doing to the environment? What What is it that we're trying to achieve here? And maybe if we just take the Singapore case as an example... Why do we need the outdoors air-conditioned? What's the purpose of that? I mean, I have to say this is one of those research interests that you get when the more that you start to find out and understand about it, the more, on the one hand, slightly obsessive one can get about the issue, but also how unsettling this tendency is to be quite honest so i mean clearly i mean we can't we can't even air uh, the, the energy costs of air conditioning the indoors in the global south are just impossible to imagine using current uh, s systems air conditioning systems so even to even to make the indoors more comfortable we're going to have to find alternative systems and technologies. So the question is, how is it possible that there is context in which we've now started to air condition the outdoors? Now, I think the way that I'm sort of framing that is that you know, if you if you look at the history of say patio heaters, you um, the you know the gas fired or electric heaters, many of which you see in Australia actually, as well as outside cooling, you see outside warming. You can see a, a logic, a logic of a logic in which, if you can utilise comfortably outdoor space for longer, you can get an enhanced rate of return. And there's actually, in the heating and warming outdoor heating and warming sector, there's well established metrics to show that you could enhance the usability of outside commercial space. So there's a particular sort of logic here around comfort and convenience. And I think you could call a sort of thermal fix. The thermal fix is to extend the period of outdoor use. So there's many examples of that. And I think it's emerging as a particular sort of expertise, design expertise, and knowledge is being developed about how you utilise the outdoor space in that way. But I think there's also something else happening. This is not solely about comfort and convenience. So I've used my time here to talk to researchers in physiology, environmental services, people who specialise in urban weather, 
And what's quite clear is the challenge, and the challenge is already here in, in Australia in many respects. The outside temperature is going to be so high, it's not safe for humans to be outside, and that's quite clear. So the, the critical question then becomes, you, you can reduce outdoor temperatures using shading, landscaping, massing, some green infrastructure, if you provide sufficient water through irrigation systems. But if the outside is going to be survivable during increasingly frequent uh, and more intense and longer duration periods of extreme heat, we're going to need to cool the outside down. And that's about survival. That's no longer about comfort and convenience. That's actually about whether the human body can actually survive outdoors. Now, that seems to me to take us into some new debates about is this a sort of form of immunization from the process of overheating seriously threatens our ability to utilize the outdoors. And what concerns me is whether outdoor heating doesn't necessarily just become about comfort convenience pleasant and cool which you experience on your skin but whether actually it's required to maintain the metabolic functions of your body you're listening to 2scr 107.3 fm in sydney we're talking with simon marvin about urban climate control and next up we move on to climate change. So the climate change literature that I've read, particularly the stuff around climate change migration, sees us moving away from places that are no longer habitable because of climate change. But I guess what we're seeing here, you've called it a new thermal fix. It's almost an infrastructure fix to that problem. So we might not migrate away. Maybe richer, more developed countries might actually create an infrastructure fix for this problem, which itself is a scary proposition. I mean, I think you can see the contours of that response emerging already. So I was able to visit... Penrith in the west of Sydney. And Penrith um, is already undergoing quite a rapid economic and population expansion. Uh, at the same, an airport's being uh, constructed. And at the same time, um, 10 years before uh, heat extremes uh, were forecast to arrive, they're arriving now. And some of the research says, and I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear one to sound alarmist because most of this is really well understood by climate researchers, is that um, the west of Sydney might have a month of days over 50 degrees centigrade by the middle of the century. It's already in January was 49 degrees. And remember, that's in the shade. Other parts of the built environment were over 60 degrees centigrade. And I don't think it's an accident that um, the city of Penrith and its partners in western Sydney have identified cooling as a significant economic sector in which they want to encourage innovation, experimentation. And I think the logic of this is that, on the one hand, they want Western Sydney to be the sort of place that you would like to live and feel able to live. The zoo that recently opened there is really interesting. There's a new zoo in Western Sydney. And they've had to install outdoor misting 
to make the visitors and potentially the animals comfortable in the, in the summer. So I think this sort of this notion of a thermal fix it's a, it's it's I suppose it's a hypothesis but you can see the way in which urban growth coalitions are becoming strategically interested in generating new knowledge and ex- and engaging new expertise in how they can modulate and modify the thermal environment in order to facilitate enhanced and continued growth so just to go flip this conversation on its head, what does all of this tell us about infrastructure itself in cities? Does this does this mean anything for infrastructure provision and the way we provide infrastructure? Or is this just happening on its own? Or is this a some sort of evolution of infrastructure provision? I mean, that's a, yeah, what does this mean for infrastructure is a really good question, because I think already one can argue that these outdoor cooling systems, whether you use misting, uh, air conditioning, uh, fog, and there's a whole myriad of other systems that we'll need and are being developed, have infrastructural qualities associated with them. In a sense, they create if if they provide the thermal fix to provide human comfort and human health. There's some really interesting questions that start to emerge about where are where are the areas that are located where you create these cooled environments? What criteria are used to judge the zones, the enclaves that become subject to these infrastructures? And what are the areas that are left out of them? And I think at the moment I would uh, it's quite clear the the Australian, for example, the Australian misting sector is probably one of the most well developed in the world. It's active in export markets in the Middle East and in uh, uh, the US and Europe. And at the moment, they're selling a sort of product. They're working with farmers. They're working with air conditioning providers to cool the air before it goes into air conditioning units. They're working with designers, landscape architects. They're now starting conversations with local government. It it reminds me a lot of the early days of um, the development of electricity networks and gas networks. It's primarily a private SME-based industry at the moment. And it's starting to gain traction. You know, they're trying to produce really well worked through rationales and cost justifications for why cooling is necessary. They've even they've even mined the literature on child learning to show that neurologically there's evidence that if children are too hot, they don't learn as effectively. And that's providing the evidence for them to sell cooling in school playgrounds. We now need to cool down small school playgrounds. And I don't suppose it's an accident that they're targeting private schools um, for those sorts of services. So I think this is about an infrastructure in the making. It's not really being subject to any critical scrutiny by by urbanists or researchers. And I think we really need to get inside and understand something about the different dynamics, because it's not just Australia this is happening, it's in China. The US is a really good example as well. We've talked a little bit about Singapore. Um, And then there's areas where it's not happening, that workers shown are going to be really susceptible to, to overheating. So I think we really need to to get inside this industry to try to understand how uh, the drivers and how they how do they embed cooling as a service 
within different aspects of the urban domain. Mm. And I also wonder how the infrastructure of cooling would intersect with just normal infrastructure in the city, because it seems like we're planning infrastructure without any knowledge of the the forces at play, both in the cooling infrastructure space, but also with the heat island effects in our cities as well, where we put hospitals, schools, housing, transport is all going to be affected by both sides of this. I mean, you're, you're, you're quite right, Dallas. I mean, I think one of the things we haven't talked about that, that your question raises is that basically, if you think about it, contemporary cities have been designed for a different climate, mm. effectively. And every dimension of in, it, I mean, it, it affects so many different dimensions of urban life. I'm, I'm, I'm find myself almost overwhelmed by the consequences and implications of overheating, because basically, our urban areas are not designed for the world that we're going to have to inhabit now and over the next um, thirty year, thirty to a hundred years. So, rising temperatures fundamentally affect existing energy systems. I mean, one of the things that I've found through this work is I think we've all taken the view that you know, air conditioned, those of us who can afford air conditioning, air conditioning provides relief from these uh, overheating and heat wave, heat extreme events. But the evidence, the research evidence from um, within the environmental services and the sort of urban physics community shows that in these heat, long heat extremes, conventional air conditioning will no longer work effectively. Now, that's a fairly horrifying prospect. I mean, there's already issues about the reliability of electricity systems, but the air conditioning won't work. So there's a company I've been talking to this morning who make a cooling product to cool the air that enters the air conditioning unit so the air conditioning unit can cool the insides during heat waves. So we, we have to pre-cool outside air for air conditioners for them to work reliably. Now, this this is almost getting to the point. I mean, this is like an inversion of an inversion. So I we're know, not I, there yet. I know you don't want this. to sound alarmist, but it does sound dystopian <laughs> at a few points in this discussion. Yeah, I, and I do feel very, I do feel really quite uncomfortable about that sort of dystopic vision. I mean, I think what what I what concerns me, I think. I mean, I as a sort of urban scholar, I suppose I've come to this agenda and as I've found out more about it, I've become more disturbed. So I've done work on climate change, privatization, fuel poverty. I've done work on a lot of issues that have really disturbed me politically and personally. And I think this issue is quite quite different in scale and scope. To, the, to some of those previous uh, research agendas. So the event I went to in Penrith was fascinating because there was a, co- a really committed coalition, maybe 250, 300 people, a multi-sectoral group of people, very focused on sort of landscaping and green infrastructure. And yet the people who are doing the longer-term work are telling me the green infrastructure doesn't work if you don't have irrigation. So, I mean, even what we think of as a nature-based service solution or shading, you still need some sort of active socio-technical system for nature to work. And I can't see... And, and, that, and for it to work effectively, it has to be done over the whole metropolitan domain. 
You know, at the moment we're talking islands and fragments of premium uh, infrastructure, premium green infrastructures. You know, we're talking about a systemic change in the social and material and ecological constitution of urban life. And that's before we start to think about active cooling, which will also become necessary because these other greening measures and shading measures will not be enough to cool the urban environment to make it healthy and survivable for humans. Simon Marvin, it's been so good having you on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to City Road on 2SER, 107.3 FM in Sydney. We've been talking with Simon Marvin about urban climate control. That's all for this week. See you later.